The Corinthians live in a culture that valued knowledge, and so do we. Aristotle wrote, all men by nature desire knowledge. But as we've observed in the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, knowledge is not the end game. Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is another. Wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom should be our goal, not simply gaining a closet full of facts. Alistair McGrath, the Oxford professor, weighed in on the issue in his text, Surprised by Meaning, Science, Faith, and How We Make Sense of Things by writing this. He said, We live in an age when the growth of the Internet has made it easier than ever to gain access to information and accumulate knowledge. But information is not the same thing as meaning, nor knowledge identical with wisdom. This is in no way to knock knowledge, but it's an attempt to appropriate a proper perspective on knowledge. In the first century Corinthian church, Paul identified two types of believers. First, those who were less knowledgeable, to put it kindly. He refers to these believers as the weaker believers. And the second category were those who have knowledge, who interestingly, he does not call in 1 Corinthians a stronger believer. The reason is that they have knowledge, but they're not applying it, which means that they're not wise and that they're not as mature in the faith as they think they are. Synthesizing these two categories, we can conclude that at least some knowledge is essential before we can have wisdom. There has to be something there to apply But knowledge alone, this is the point, knowledge alone doesn't make one mature in the faith. And since Paul deeply desires the Corinthians to mature in their faith, he's encouraging them to learn and then apply what has been learned in love. This is where they're coming up short. This is where many of us come up short. The first half of chapter 10 served as a warning, a very stern warning for them and for us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. The Corinthians, as it turns out, didn't know as much as they thought they knew. That's going to come out in today's passage. They didn't apply what they knew in love as much as they thought they did. And therefore, they were not as mature in the faith as they thought they were. The whole first portion of this chapter is all summed up very nicely when Paul said, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Then in the final portion of the chapter, Paul seeks to help the Corinthians correct this problem that they have. In verses 14 through 22, Paul tells them this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, 
But I say that the, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we not provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? In verse 7, Paul told the Corinthians, Do not be idolaters. And now he returns to the subject. There's a fine line between eating meat that's sacrificed to idols, which he has already indicated that is not sinful, and today he's going to give us a clue that he himself had eaten meat that was sacrificed to idols. But there's a fine line between doing that and slipping into idolatry. Verse 15, as he says, I speak to wise men, you judge what I say. It is probably sprinkled or spiced with a little irony there, sarcasm if you prefer. He's been calling them out on the issue of wisdom. Tell them they don't have wisdom. But at the same time, they have the potential, the great potential for acting wisely. So he says, basically, listen up and decide for yourself. Give it an objective look, my friends. And in verses 16 through 21, Paul makes a comparison, and I hope you caught it, between the sacred ritual of the Lord's table and pagan meals eaten in pagan temples to celebrate their gods. That's what he's talking about in verse 16 when he talks about the cup of blessing and sharing in the blood of Christ or the bread and sharing in the body of Christ. The terminology that's used here is the, is the Greek term koinonia. Koinonia is, is a term that means literally fellowship or perhaps a close, intimate, personal relationship. So when we share in the cup of blessing, we are sharing in a, a close, intimate relationship, not only with our fellow believers that participate with us, but also with God. Since they understand the sacredness of the Lord's table, at least allegedly, He's going to come back to that point next week. Maybe not as much as they think they do there either. Paul can, though, at least from what they do understand, he can use what they do know to help them see where they may have gone wrong, where their train may have gone off the tracks, with this whole idea of them being more mature than they thought they really were. There is a close, intimate relationship that you and I have, both with the Lord and with the person sitting next to us, in front of us, behind us, and all around us, when we participate in the Lord's table. It's like we have a whole room full of people that are saying, I too have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and grant me eternal life. I may look differently than the next person. I may have different attitudes on certain non-essentials than the next person. But one thing that we all share in common, and I trust it's, that's what, it's the way it is today, one thing that we all share in common in this room is that we have personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life. This is what makes us part of the body of Christ. And we also share in common a, a common Lord that we love, and there's this intimacy there. That's why it's going to be so bad in the next chapter when they, they attempt to participate in this intimacy way out of fellowship with God. And, but for now, he's telling us... Listen to this comparison, my friends. There's this, there's this communion service that you participate in, and you know something about it, and you know something of the intimacy of it and the fellowship that we have with God and our fellow believer when we participate. Also, he uses the example of the nation Israel. 
In the Old Testament, now they didn't participate in the Lord's table, but they had ritual sacrifices. And when those who participated in the ritual sacrifices did so, there was a communion between them and their Lord, between them and Yahweh, and also between them and their fellow Yahweh worshipers. That's verse 18. Then he comes to verse 19 and 20, and he again acknowledges what he has done before, that idols are non-entities. They're just something that's been crafted out of wood or metal. And so, therefore, eating meat that's sacrificed to a non-entity is morally neutral. But, and this is a huge however, this is something that the knowledgeable in Corinth hadn't considered. The things that the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrificed to demons. Now, this is just a new bit of information that he hadn't discussed in chapters 8 or 9. This is a big uh uh-oh moment. Uh Uh-oh. Paul Stonium, you're right in your understanding that an idol is simply something that's fashioned out of wood or metal. But in reality, idol worship is bathed in demonic activity. And that's a whole other ballgame. Just like, he says, just like you're having fellowship with God when you participate in the Lord's table, so the pagans, so the Corinthian unbelievers are having fellowship with demons when they participate in their temple meals. Paul is very subtly here letting the knowledgeable believers, and I put that in quotes, know that they didn't know quite as much as they thought that they knew. Oh, they knew that an idol was nothing. They got that part. But what they didn't get, that idol worship in those pagan temples was very closely associated with demonism. Eating meat sacrificed to idols is one thing. Participating in pagan festivals was another. Participation in pagan temple worship was, of course, forbidden. And that's what some of these more knowledgeable believers were doing. They weren't just buying the meat that was sacrificed at the temple and being put in the meat market and taking it home and eating it. Some of them were actually eating the meat in the pagan temples, thinking all along, well, there's nothing to this. There's no problem with me being here. It's it's a non-entity. And Paul introduces the fact that, yes, the the idol itself is a non-entity, but there's demonic activity going on there. You shouldn't be there. They're not quite as smart. It's what they thought they were. Then he draws a line in the sand. In verses 21 and 22, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't have it both ways, my friends. He's telling the Corinthians, you've got to choose a side and get on it. Just like William Barrett Travis at the Alamo. Drew that line in the sand. You're on one side of that line or you're on the other side of that line. You can't straddle it. And that's what Paul's doing here for the Corinthians, and he does it for us too. Not just in the area of eating meat sacrificed to idols, because that's not a problem for us today, is it? I don't know of any meat market that's that's selling meat in Houston that was sacrificed to idols. Obviously, that's not the problem. But there are other issues that are problems that we might think are morally neutral. But if we think about it more, maybe they're, they're not so morally neutral. And so that's what he's telling them in verse 21. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You've got to pick a side and get on it. You can't straddle that, f- that offense. Or do we provoke the Lord to, to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? 
There's a very well-known cultural figure in the United States who, who claims that she left the Christian faith because of passages like this, where the, the text tells us that the Lord is a jealous God. But I think she doesn't understand the Lord or jealousy because the Lord knows that it's really bad for us to stray from Him, to stray from His fellowship. So He jealously wants us to stay with Him. He wants the highest and the best for us. And He knows that's not going to happen if we stray over into demonic worship in this first century context or some other kind of demonic activity in a 21st century context or any activity that's overtly sinful. Fundamental allegiance is at stake here. The believer can't have one foot in the realm of demon activity and the other foot in the church and then at the same time assume fellowship with God. It just simply doesn't work that way. The Lord demands, He demands our undivided allegiance. That is, if we want to have this koinonia relationship with Him, that close intimate, personal fellowship with the Lord that we were designed to enjoy. That's what he made us for, was fellowship with himself. That's why he jealously guards that. When we go wandering off out of fellowship with him into anything else, he knows that's not the best for us. That's not what we were made for. That's not the abundant life that Jesus talked about. So many people misuse that passage when Jesus says, I came to give life and give it abundantly. Some people try to insert material prosperity in there. That's not material prosperity. Oh, material prosperity may come along, but the abundant life that Jesus is speaking about is an unhindered fellowship with himself. So how does this all apply, you might be asking, to the subject at hand in chapters 8 through 10? Because we said when we started these chapters that these are one unified whole, chapters 8 through 10. This is how it all comes together. There are times when love trumps liberty. But look at verses 23 through 26. He comes back to the subject, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Just as verse 12 summarized the first half of this chapter, verse 23 provides an excellent summary of the second half of this chapter. Here he says, all things are lawful. Now some of your translations may read, all things are permissible. Same Greek term could be translated either way with perfect legitimacy. All things are permissible, all things are lawful, but not all things are are profitable. It reminds me of G.K. Chesterton's quip, all desires are not necessarily desirable. Well, this, another way of putting that is all things are lawful, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. By referencing all things here, he is, of course, not referring to things that are overtly sinful, that have a moral component to them. In context, and we have to stay in context, the all things that are referenced in this verse are things that have no inherent moral component. No inherent moral component. When you look at it that way, we might read it like this. Things that have no inherent moral component 
are lawful. They're permissible for us. But not all things that have no inherent moral component are profitable for us. Do you get his point? These activities, which have no inherent moral component, but when exercised in certain situations, are not profitable. The profitability that's in view in verse 23 is the spiritual growth of someone else. In context again. That's what he means by profitable. And that seems clear from verse 24 when he says, Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. In a few verses, the profitability is going to be expanded to include the salvation of unbelievers. But first things first, if something that I'm doing, which has no inherent moral quality or component, in other words, it's morally neutral, if something that I'm doing is morally neutral, is hindering the spiritual growth of my fellow believer in Jesus Christ, then I'm going to stop doing it. There are times when love trumps liberty. We all value our liberty. We all value our freedom. On a day like today, we celebrate those who have purchased our freedom on the battlefield for us. They've given their lives for us so we can exercise freedom. The Word of God is full of freedoms. The Word of God is, not, is just not an ethical manual that, that tells us what not to do. We have, we have plenty of freedoms in the Word of God. But these freedoms that have no inherent moral quality, if they're exercised in the wrong way, and if they can hurt my fellow believer, I need to stay away from them. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I'm maturing in the faith and then I'm exercising love. The Corinthians weren't. And that's why Paul is calling them out in these passages. For Paul, personal freedom is not an absolute. It's always conditioned by the principle of seeking the good of another. Always. Before we go any further, let me pause and get to the heart of the matter of what he's presented so far. Are we willing to give up legitimate activities that have no inherent moral component when under certain circumstances those activities could hinder the spiritual growth of another believer? Are we willing to do that? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves as we come to this point in this chapter and this point in this study. It's time to ask that question. Are we willing to do that? Now you have to answer that yourself. Don't answer it out loud, of course. But in your own soul, where there is privacy, and hopefully there's honesty, in your own soul, answer that question. Are we willing to do that? That's what's at issue here. The mature and the maturing in the faith will do so. The immature will not. And that's totally between you and God. If you hear that question, you say, heck no, I'm not going to do that. I have my freedoms to heck with them. You have every right to answer the question that way, but just understand, if you're doing a self-evaluation, you're not either mature or maturing in the faith. There's a serious problem. You have the same problem that the Corinthians had. So these chapters are for you. And actually, these chapters are for all of us, because at any one time or another, we all have done that, haven't we? We've all insisted on the exercise of our liberty to the detriment of someone else. Are you convicted that there are times when love trumps liberty? Do you do what you do for the benefit of yourself alone or for the benefit of someone else and ultimately for the glory of God? These are questions that we all have to ask ourselves. If we can honestly answer yes to those questions, 
then we're progressing. We haven't made it necessarily. We're at least progressing in the spiritual life. If you know me, you know I don't like to talk about people who are mature in the faith when in 60 to 62 A.D. when Paul writes Philippians, he didn't consider himself a mature believer in the faith. He thought he had growing to do. That's why I prefer to talk about maturing in the faith. It's a process. But if we can honestly answer yes to those kinds of questions, we're at least progressing from knowledge to wisdom, from immaturity to maturity. If not, there's a problem. Let's face it. That's a fixable problem. But there is a problem. And the first step to fixing a problem is understanding that there is one. And again, this is something between you and the Lord. It's not between you and me or you and your wife or you and your husband or you and your kids, anybody. Strictly between you and God. These are questions you have to answer before Him. Back to our text. Once the principle of seeking the good of one's neighbor over one's own good is established, then Paul is going to expand a bit on the application of this principle including unbelievers into the mix. Yes, we want to set aside certain things that are legitimate, that are morally neutral for the good of a fellow believer. But what about unbelievers? Is there a time when I need to set aside some of my liberties for an unbeliever? Well, you probably have guessed the answer is yes to that one too. In verses 27 through the first half of 29, Paul says... If one of the unbelievers invites you, and this is to his home, not to the temple. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this meat has been sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but for the other man's conscience. The situation there is somebody has a pagan in Corinth, had a believer in Corinth over to their home. They serve meat. As long as nothing is said, just eat the meat. But if the pagan gets more in your face about it, so by the way, the meat that you're eating is temple meat. We sacrificed that to our gods today. And is making an issue of it at that point, then you've got to back off. This is a difficult concept, especially when he's switching from believers to unbelievers. And should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, yes, you can, but not if it's been eaten in the temple. There's a lot of things here, but there's one overriding principle that I think will will come out of this. And let me see if I can illustrate this part this way. Several years ago, my wife Cindy and I were invited to a party of some very dear friends. Nice people. Social graces. Wonderful people. But when we got there, both of us almost immediately recognized that there's just not something right. Now, if you're like me, and this is not necessarily a good thing, but most of the parties that I go to now are parties with other believers in Jesus Christ. Most of the lunches that I eat are lunches with other believers in Jesus Christ. And you can kind of get into a bad habit there of never having anybody to witness to because you never hang around anybody that's not saved. But maybe that's why we felt it. But both of us, when we entered into the house... We just felt something wasn't quite right. And after 15, 20, 25 minutes, I'm not exactly sure what the time was, we both looked at each other and said, I don't feel comfortable here. Because everywhere we went, somebody was either using the Lord's name in vain in a very vulgar way, or presenting some real vulgar stories, or 
watching something real vulgar on the, the big screen TV that was there. And it was in your face. They knew that we were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet they were in your face about some of the things that they were saying about my Lord. Now, there's a temptation there for you and me and people like us, or at least people like me, to say something, you know, that's my Lord you're talking about. One more word and we're going outside. But that would have been a wrong thing to do. So we looked at ourselves and we both said, I, th I think it's just time for us to go. We'd only been there perhaps a half hour total at that point after our conversation. And we, we went to our hostess, who's a dear, dear person. And we just said, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to go. And she said, well, why? You've only been here 30 minutes. And lovingly, I hope kindly, we just explained, hey, listen, we're Christians, you know that. Your friends obviously aren't. They're being kind of in your face about it. Rather than have a to-do, I think we'll just slip on out, if that's okay with you. Since they had such social graces, her husband, she and her husband both, they were, they were fine with that. It was, they were apologetic about it. But you see, we were in a situation that it just didn't make sense for us to stay because of our Christian testimony. In a similar way, these Corinthian believers, when they put themselves in a social situation like that, and there's no, there's no component where somebody's in your face about their paganism, then stay. Stay, develop a friendship with them, do your best to minister to them. But if they're in your face, then Paul says you got to go. The in your face part being, no, this meat's been sacrificed to idols. You're fixing to eat a bite of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Well, if that's the case, they say, well, you know, in that case, you know, being a Christian, some of them had a Jewish background too, it would it'd be preferable for us not to do that. It's a sensitive social thing that Paul speaks about here, but the bigger issue is one's testimony. The bigger issue is how much do you really love the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not saying that we storm out of the room every time we hear a joke that we ought not to, that, that we don't like. That, that's, that's prudish legalism, and it's ugly, and it's not endearing to anybody. I'm not talking about that at all. There are some things that we just need to get over. But there are other things that are so blatant, that are so in your face, that rather than getting an argument about it, because there's no way to win a convert in an argument, by the way. You win a convert in discussions, but not arguments. It's best just to excuse yourself. And make sure your Christian testimony is intact. If the Corinthian pagan left it alone, no problem. But if he made eating meat an issue, then they had to refrain out of love in concern for that individual's salvation. They couldn't go along acting like what they were doing was no big deal. Then in the last half of verse 29 and then in verse 30, we have what appears to be a personal interjection on the Apostle Paul's part. When he said... For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that which, for which I gave thanks? These verses almost seem out of place. New Testament scholars have a real hard time with these verses. But what it appears as though is Paul is almost putting a, a parenthetical statement in here. To the weaker believers in Corinth that are giving him a hard time for eating meat that was sacrificed to idols that was bought in the meat market, not in the pagan temple. Paul says, hey, listen, if it's received with thanks... Why are you slandering me for eating this food? He's speaking more to the weaker believers here than he is to the stronger believers. But what, what he does here is very instructive, even though it's a quick parenthesis. I think it's very instructive. Because here he is kindly instructing the slanderers that eating the meat that he ate was legitimate. 
It doesn't change the fact that he's going to refrain from eating it. But it's his job to educate them at the same time. Now, two or three weeks ago, I forgot exactly when it was, we introduced the illustration for more modern times. And I know it was a sensitive illustration. I could tell on some of your faces. But we, we introduced the illustration of something that ought to be considered morally neutral. And that is perhaps having a glass of wine with dinner. The reason I say that that's morally neutral, our Lord made wine, and our Lord drank wine, and our Lord was perfect. He didn't make something that was morally sinful, and he never got drunk. Now, you may have a personal preference against drinking wine. You may be an alcoholic, so you should never have a drop. This is a totally different issue. But consuming wine is morally neutral. To say otherwise is to impugn the very character of our Lord himself. But if there are times when I'm going to drink wine and it's going to offend someone that's a believer that doesn't understand that, the first time I'll probably just withdraw altogether. But if I love that believer, especially if I'm that believer's pastor, or if I'm that believer's friend, and we go to lunch the next day, I might bring up the fact. You know, Jesus drank wine. Occasionally I will drink wine too, but in a way it will be an explanation of the behavior so that they could grow. In other words, you don't just leave them in the dark. And that, I think, is what Paul is doing in this very short parenthesis. He's letting these weaker believers know that, by the way, I too have eaten meat that was sacrificed to idols. It's not just those knowledgeable believers that you don't think very much of. I've done it too. And he's educating them here. So in terms of a practical nature, I told you we'd get to this when we got to the end of chapter 10. Practically speaking, if you can educate someone in love, then educate them. Then if they're okay with it next time, then go for it. If they still think it's socially unacceptable, then don't do it. But at least you've given them an opportunity to be educated about the situation. As he concludes the chapter, Paul puts everything in perspective, challenging the Corinthians to do what they do for God's glory. Whether it be for the benefit of a struggling believer or for an unbeliever's salvation. In verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. In many ways, verse 31 could be a summary statement along with verse 23, summarizing the whole concept. In fact, verse 31, if anything, is a summary statement for chapters 8, 9, and 10. Whether then you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. You see, he's saying, how much is the salvation of an unbeliever worth to you? Really, how much is it worth? Is it worth you walking across the street and talking to your neighbor? Is it worth you inviting somebody to the church? Is it worth you refraining from a perfectly legitimate activity so as not to unnecessarily offend them or to give them the wrong idea about something? Is it worth that much to you? And Paul said, yeah, it's worth that much to me because that's why I'm here. I'm here for them. I'm not here for me, Paul says. And I hope we can all say the same thing. Personal freedom is not an absolute. It is always conditioned by the principle of seeking the good of another. Yeah.